Okay. Um, I know a few people will still be finding their seats for a little bit here, but um, let me go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll go ahead and launch into uh, today's lesson. Father, we thank you, as always, uh, for the chance that we have to gather and to study your word and to learn from it. And uh, we thank you for what we've been able to learn from your scriptures for the last seven weeks about um, what it means to be made in the image of God. And uh, as we look at that one more week and uh, reflect on some of what we've learned, uh, we pray that you would help these truths sink into our hearts and our minds and uh, that we would indeed be transformed by them. Um, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, okay, so uh, this is our let. This will actually be our final session for this class, um, and this is our eighth week. And the idea for this class uh, was, uh, for this session was um, originally to be uh, more of a kind of um, Q and A time. And but uh, uh, this time I didn't really receive that many questions. And so what I've uh, done instead is sort of prepared my own. Uh, final reflections, and um, maybe appropriately there are seven of them, um, but these are my own uh, final reflections, uh, what I have learned um, and reflected on as I've thought about this topic and taught on it uh, for the last seven weeks. And so depending on how quickly I can get through this, there may also be some time for uh, final questions at the very end. Um, but throughout this class, uh, this has been an interesting one in that it has um, caused me at times to have to play the part of Old Testament scholar, sometimes New Testament scholar, sometimes systematic theologian, sometimes church historian, and uh, today I would like to be pastoral theologian and talk about uh, what this topic means to me practically, uh, what I gain from all of this. Um, and the first thing that comes to mind, uh, the first thing that I learn from uh, studying the image of God in scripture is that being made in the image of God tells me what I am worth. And that's a huge thing to me, something that I think can easily be taken for granted. But as we saw, um, even in the first week of this class, to be made in the image of God, uh, I'm being told, I think, that I need to use the handheld mic. Um, okay, is this on? We're good? Okay. Um, so I'm, uh, we learned even in the first week of this class that being made in the image of God means that we have an inherent self-worth by virtue of our creation. We have a de facto self-worth, we could say it that way, uh, which cannot be taken from us. And this is not a typical way of thinking for me, and maybe not for a lot of us. I'm somebody who uh, has a very uh, robust um, theology of total depravity. Um, I have less of a robust um, sense of my own self-worth, and I'm probably not the only one like that. Um, but it is very easy for me to believe in my own depravity. It's very easy for me to believe in my shortcomings. Um, and, and from there, it is very easy for me to think that I have to um, make my life worthwhile. 
uh, did I have to make my life worth something? And the first thing that I learn from reflecting on the fact that I am made in the image of God is that that's not true. Um, I have an inherent self-worth by virtue of my creation. Um, my value as a person is therefore not dependent on my own achievements or my lived life. It is simply a God-given fact. Uh, and that's true for all of us. We have a value um, that is just a fact of our being, uh, regardless of what we do, what we accomplish, what anyone else thinks, what we ourselves think. And uh, I don't have to make my life count. My life simply counts. Um, and going even a step beyond that, I've actually been endowed, if I reflect on this, with the highest self-worth possible. I bear God's image within creation. Uh, this, again, is true of all of us. And uh, so not only do we have an inherent self-worth, we have the highest self-worth possible within creation. And, uh, and, and that's worth thinking about for a while. Um, but beyond that, uh, the image of God also tells me what others are worth. So it tells me something about human dignity. Everything that Genesis 1, 26 through 27 and 9, 6 uh, tell me about myself uh, and my own self-worth is also true of others. And not just true of some people, but true of all human beings. And so I think a good way to think about this, what the image of God tells us about uh, the worth of other human beings, is actually to uh, picture your least favorite person in the world. Um, and now I know we're not supposed to have a least favorite person in the world, but I also know that we're all sinful human beings, and we actually do. Um, and uh, so think about someone that you don't like. And now when you picture that person, think that person is made in the image of God. Um, that's how we have to think about this. Uh, it's, it's very easy to think of our friends, our family perhaps, or, um, and it, well, maybe your family, depending on the relationship you have with them. But um, the, it's, it's very easy to think of those that we love as being made in the image of God. Um, it's, it's more difficult, more of a challenge when we think about the people that we don't like, when you think about the person who was rude to you in a parking lot um, or on the road or something like that. Um, but yes, that person too is made in the image of God and has an inherent dignity and self-worth uh, the same as yours. Um, and it, we saw in the, in the second week of this class in particular, um, both male and female are equally made in the image of God. All races and, eth and ethnicities are equally made in the image of God. We could even say all cultures uh, somehow reflect the image of God. And uh, just to expand on that briefly, I would say on the matter of culture, um, every culture on the face of the earth, insofar as it's an expression of humanity, uh, has the same potential uh, to reflect something of God and the same potential to be corrupted. Um, but there is no one culture uh, that has a monopoly on what it means to reflect God's image over and against another. Uh, people who are mentally handicapped are made in the image of God. Anyone, everyone from the unborn to the elderly who are in hospice care is equally made in the image of God and has this inherent dignity that must be respected. And so when we think about this, what this means is that kindness 
the kindness that the Bible implores us to again and again throughout Old and New Testament alike is not just a virtue, it's a mandate of the highest order. Um, because to disrespect a human being uh, made in God's image is actually to disrespect the creator God himself. Um, we, saw that, we saw that this is actually the rationale um, behind Genesis 9-6 in particular that uh, God demands uh, the blood of someone who sheds the blood of a human being because to shed the blood of a human being is, uh, is an affront to God himself. It's akin to blasphemy. It's an attack on his image. Um, and, uh, and so this, this actually, if we think about it for a minute, takes us straight to the theology of Jesus that we see in uh, Sermon on the Mount and some other places. Um, on the next slide, I think, we, yeah. Um, and so in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we're familiar with the fact that Jesus uh, compares compares speaking to someone in anger um, and judgment to murder. Uh, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the, fire, to the hell of fire. And um, again, uh, respect for other human beings um, is a mandate precisely because human beings are made in the image of God and to disrespect a human is to disrespect God himself. Um, and uh, Matthew 25, 40 and 45 is another good example that we can turn to. Um, uh, this is just an abbreviation or, or, well, a sampling of a much larger passage that's worth turning to, um, but, uh, but we're familiar with this saying probably, the, um, the sort of um, punchline of the whole thing. Uh, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. If we think about this in terms of the image of God, that makes perfect sense. We have seen that the New Testament um, tells us that Jesus is the image of God. It also says that we are made in the image of God. And so there is a sense, and there's, there's a very real sense in which disrespect shown to any human being is disrespect shown to Christ himself and to God himself. And the reverse is also true. Respect shown to a human being is respect shown to God himself. Um, number three. The image of God tells me why I am here. It tells me what my basic purpose is as a human being. Um, above all, to be made in the image of God means that I am made to reflect God's likeness in this world. Uh, it also means, we saw, that uh, I am made to have a relationship with God as a child to a parent and thirdly, to care for everything that he has entrusted to me. I'm made to reflect his likeness in this world, I'm made to have a relationship with him, and I'm made to care for everything that he has entrusted to me. And so what this means is that in everything I do, in my family life, in my vocation, or my career, or even in my hobbies, in my free time, um, I should be asking myself how I can do these things, how to do these three things, and how to do them well. Um, how do I, in my family life, um, seek to reflect God's likeness? 
Um, how do I care for what he's entrusted to me? How do I do that in terms of my vocation, in terms of my career? Uh, what does it look like in the workplace? Um, not just in my relationships with my colleagues, that's one thing, but also um, my job itself. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an educator and, and a and a theologian, that's one thing, but, uh, but whatever it may be, uh, whether you work in sales, whether you're an engineer, whether you are a lawyer or a doctor or, um, or um, whether you uh, work in a department store, whatever you do, um, we should be asking these three things. How do I do that in such a way as to reflect God's likeness, his character? How do I do that in a way that expresses um, care for the things that he has put in my hands, the things that he has entrusted to me. Um, and so in one sense, and this, is, this brings us again to the theology of Jesus. In one sense, maybe this looks like being salt and light. Jesus taught us to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Um, and in a sense, that's exactly um, what it should like, look, look like to um, live out the image of God, what it means to be made in the image of God. But all of this has to flow out of love, too. Uh, the love of God is at the very heart of our purpose, and we see that uh, through the fact that one of the things that it means to be made in the image of God is uh, to have a relationship with him um, analogous to the relationship between a child and a parent. And so his love for us and our love for him in return is at the very heart of our purpose. Um, we can't fulfill our purpose apart from that love. And, and, and if, we're, um, if, we're, if, we're, if we're really operating the way that God intended for us to, living out his vision for us, then everything else that we do, all the rest of our purpose should flow out of this loving relationship with God that is at the heart of it all. Number four, being made in the image of God also tells me what my limits are. On the one hand, it tells me uh, something about my worth, my dignity, my purpose. On the other hand, it tells me what my limits are. Um, to be made in the image of God, we saw at some point in this class, is to be uh, existentially bound to God himself. Now, what in the world does that mean? Um, uh, existentially bound to God himself. In plain English, it means that we lose all substance. We lose all sense of purpose and we lose all of our value apart from him. Our value, our purpose, and our substance is actually um, entirely dependent on him. Uh, how, how do I figure? Um, how, how do we get this out of um, being made in the image of God? Well, it's kind of like this. Um, if you think of a mirror, the reflection, the image that you see in a mirror um, has no substance of its own. It derives its substance from the thing that it is an image of, from the thing that it reflects. Um, if I uh, take a photograph, that photograph has no meaning of its own apart from the thing that it is a photograph of. If I paint a picture, if I create a sculpture, all these things are representations, images of some kind, and they have no meaning of their own. Their meaning, um, their value, um, and comes from uh, what they are an image of, and the same is true with us. Part of what it means to be made in the image of God means that our, that our meaning um, is fundamentally derived from him. Uh, and because of that, it also means that apart from him, we lose it. 
So, um, so my worth, the worth of others, and my purpose and value um, are, all, are all dependent on him. And the more closely I cling to him, then, that means uh, the more truly I will, I will be, um, yeah, the, more, the more truly myself I will be, and the more I will find my own good. Um, it is in clinging to God that I will become most fully myself, and that I will find my own good. Um, it also means that the further I separate myself from him or seek autonomy from him, the more diminished and aimless I will become. And that's worth remembering. Um, so to the extent, and then finally, to the extent that I do what we see Adam and Eve doing in Genesis 3, to the extent that I seek to actually be him, not just to reflect his likeness, but to actually be him, to be the master of my own destiny. Uh, do we see what's happened there if we do that? If we, if we seek to be God, then we are no longer being a reflection of God, and we, we can't actually be him. But what we will do in, in seeking to be him rather than reflect him is shed all of the dignity um, that he actually gave us. Um, and so to the extent that I seek to be master of my own destiny, I will actually lose myself in every possible sense of the word. Um, number five, viewing the image of God in light of the fall helps me understand my flaws and my imperfections. How do we understand, a question that sometimes comes up um, that we only touched on just a little bit in this class, but a, a question that sometimes comes up is how do we understand the fact that we are made in the image of God in light of things like birth defects or chronic illnesses and disabilities or inherent sinful tendencies and desires? Those are all three very different things, three very different um, types of imperfections, one could say. Um, one, having inherent sinful desires is obviously a moral flaw. The other two are not. Um, but these are all things that we might wonder about. If I'm made in the image of God, why is any of that true? Why do I have moral um, flaws within me? Why do I have, not moral flaws, but birth defects? Um, why, why, um, uh, why chronic illness? Why disability? Um, so why why are some why are some children born with um, such severe birth defects that they will only live for a few hours? Um, why why are, why do some of us struggle with things like um, anxiety or or depression or other disorders that may have um, genetic causes behind them? Um, or for that matter, certain chronic illnesses and disabilities that may have uh, genetic causes behind them. Um, uh, I, I've, I've heard a lot of people ask before, I've been asked personally before, um, how, how do I understand that in, the, in light of the fact that I'm made in the image of God? Or what good is it to be made in the image of God if these things are also true? Uh, what good does it do me? And, and this is where I think it's an extremely important that we also view the image of God in light of the fall. The fall helps me understand all of these things in some way or another. Um, perhaps the easiest one to understand is my own sinful tendencies and desires. Uh, when we fell, the image of God in us was defaced because of sin, and sin entered us and produces um, an uh, inherent um, 
bent towards sin at this point, a natural inclination to sin. But it did more than that too. Um, if we were to, if we turn to Romans 8, 19 through 22, one of the things that Paul alludes to there is the fact that uh, when we sinned, not only did sin enter us, uh, enter humanity, producing this natural inclination to sin, but also the power of sin wrecked all of creation. Uh, it wrecked nature itself. Uh, I'll just read verses 20 through 22 for us. Paul writes, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now there's a lot going on in that picture, and Paul is also even there um, setting his gaze toward the redemption of creation. But in the meantime, he uh, look at some of the things that he alludes to uh, that are true about creation. Creation is in bondage, uh, bondage to corruption. Uh, other translations will say decay, so corruption or decay. Um, uh, but creation itself is enslaved. Um, it's subjected to futility, um, and, and it is groaning under its current condition. One of the things that we see here is that, um, is that just as God gave creation to Adam to manage and to take care of, so to speak, when Adam fell, it not only threw him into chaos, but it threw all of creation into chaos with him. And as a result of that, uh, there's a whole lot um, that happens. Nature itself is twisted, and there's a whole lot that happens within it that should never have happened, that was not part um, of God's original design. And, um, we can, and we can think of things even like genetic defects within um, uh, this realm of twisted nature and things that were not meant to be. And so... Um, Understanding the totality of what the fall did, not just to us, but to all of creation, helps us understand um, our own imperfections and, uh, and why we may have, uh, why there may be things in us that we wish were not the case um, uh, in spite of being made in the image of God. And yet, Scripture tells us in Genesis 9-6 that God's image remains intact even after the fall. Um, and so what we are now is caught between two truths. We are created in God's image on the one hand and also corrupted along with all of nature by sin. And we live between those polar opposite truths caught between them, um, which is precisely why we need the redemption that is in Jesus Christ to free us from that. Um, so that brings me to number six. Seeing Jesus Christ as the image of God helps me to bask in God's plan of redemption. Uh, and I chose the word bask, not just understand very intentionally, um, because part of what happens when I reflect on Jesus as the image of God is that I also gain a, a deeper appreciation for how astounding his majesty is and how astounding of a thing God has done um, in redeeming us. So we saw, uh, we saw in Colossians 1, uh, 15 and 16 in particular, uh, we saw it in other places too, but there probably most clearly, that Jesus Christ is actually the true image of God uh, from before time began. 
Um, now, that's, that's crucial to recognize that um, when Colossians calls Jesus the image of God, Colossians also simultaneously points to his pre-existence. Um, and so Colossians 1, 15 through 16, we see um, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And so, uh, in other words, even before we were made in the image of God, even before Adam and Eve were made in the image of God, um, Christ was the image of the invisible God through whom all things were made. Um, and, uh, and so even though, um, even, even when Adam, even Adam and Eve uh, were created, even when they were created, they were already created in conformity to God's Son, the second person of the Trinity who became incarnate as Jesus Christ. Now that's mind-boggling if you think about it for a while. Uh, we talked about the fact that uh, Paul also talks about Jesus as the uh, image of God in the sense that he is a new or second Adam. Um, so there is that. Um, but we also find out that Jesus Christ has been the image of the invisible God from before time began. Um, and so in the first place, Adam was created um, already uh, to reflect um, the eternal Son of God in some way. Um, and then the eternal Son of God became incarnate uh, and became a new Adam and perfected in himself what it meant for humanity to resemble the eternal Son of God because he is the eternal Son of God. Um, if that makes your head hurt, it's okay. That's part of the fun of it, is that God makes our head hurt. He will make your head explode in the best ways possible, and you will never fully understand um, the majesty that is Jesus Christ. Um, this is why I study theology. I just like to have God blow up my head all the time. Um, and, uh, and so now, our redemption her redemption takes the form of being reconformed to the image of God precisely by being conformed to the image of Christ himself. So just as Christ was the eternal image of God from before time began, our redemption consists of being conformed to him, conformed to Christ, and as that happens, we are also being reconformed to the image of God. Somehow, then, we were always actually destined to be conformed to the image of God, who was the image of God from before the foundation of the world. Um, and Paul alludes to something along those lines in Romans 8.29. Um, as the image of God, we were always a reflection of Christ himself. In the incarnation, he became what we were meant to be perfectly and perfected the image of God in humanity. Um, he put sin to death on the cross so that we might be free from it and was raised to new life so that we might also live for God. Uh, so through him, we can at last be what we were meant to be. Seventh and finally, the image of God helps me to understand God better. Now, um, there's one sense in which I don't mean that. I cannot uh, know who God is simply by looking at myself in a mirror or by looking at other people, uh, precisely because we, none of us reflect him um, so perfectly as that anymore. Um, and that's part of the consequence of the fall. But I can nevertheless learn a few things about God from reflecting on the fact that he made us in his image. And what I learn is this. 
Only a God of love would create like this. Only a God of love would create miniatures of himself, reflections of himself to be his children, whose fundamental purpose consists in part in, in being um, created for loving relationship with him, to be loved by him and to love him in return. Only a God of love would create like this. Also, only a God of love would redeem like this. Uh, only, only a God of love would go through uh, ages and ages of trouble to redeem a creation gone severely wrong, um, to redeem children uh, who have been this disobedient. Um, only, only a God of love would do something like this. Um, only a God of glory, we can also say, would create like this. Um, and only a God of glory would redeem like this. And that again is reflecting that majesty that we saw in the plan of redemption. Only a God of glory uh, would do something like that. Uh, would, would either create this way, uh, create reflections of himself um, to be in relationship with him, or, or redeem uh, in the way that he has. Only a God who is supremely good would do anything like this. Um, we see the goodness of God in everything that he has ordained to be from creation to redemption. Uh, only a God of, ast of astounding patience would do this. Um, the patience of God is one of the things that blows me away the most when I uh, study this entire plan from creation to redemption, everything that he's doing in human beings, especially when you realize um, that uh, Christ was the image of God before the foundations of the world. In other words, this was the plan before the foundations of the world and a plan that, um, that has taken, uh, you know, from uh, in Scripture alone we have, we have thousands of years um, passing by. Um, and the plan is not even um, complete yet, uh, not complete with Christ's return yet. And so... The patience of God, uh, that God would actually uh, endure um, all of history, that he, would, that, that he would bear with us that long. Um, it would have been far easier, it seems, to just start over and to just erase us and start over. Um, but it did not please God to do so. It pleases him to do this instead. Then uh, one of the last things I learned is that God is for us, and he has never been against us. Um, it's one of those things that scripture tells us plainly, but that we have to constantly be reminded of, and one of the things, and it is something that we see in the fact that God, first of all, created us in his image. If that's, if that's not being for us, I don't know what is. And the links that he has gone to to redeem us, again, if he's not for us, then um, I don't know what being for us means. Um, and, um, but we often imagine uh, the opposite. We often imagine that God is somehow against us. But reflecting on the image of God helps me understand that God has always been fundamentally for us and never against us. And lastly, reflecting on the image of God um, has caused me to understand that the best of what I am and what I know is from him. And the worst is the product of mine and humanity's deviations from his image. So I will end there.
and I have left us about 13 minutes for questions or comments. So during the service today, they talked about the whole LGBTQ community and the trans community. And part of the Christian community is pretty cruel to trans people. You know, they want to pass laws. They think that they're abominations where obviously I take the opposite view of they're God's children and this is part of their mission and God's path for them. How do you see that tied into the image of God and how some Christians do not accept them as an image of God? Uh, thanks for that question. So there are um, a few facets to that question. And so let me start with um, the first thing that you mentioned, which is uh, how, we, how we treat uh, the LGBTQ community, and um, you're right, absolutely, that at times um, Christians have been cruel um, to the LGBTQ community, um, and there are ways in which uh, they've been treated as subhuman, not only by Christians, but by Christians as well as others. Um, and, uh, and certainly, um, if we're going to respect the dignity of all people um, as made in the image of God, there's no place for cruelty. Um, and, and one thing that we do need to reflect on is as we, as we think of uh, all people being made in the image of God, when we see someone who is LBGTQ, um, that person too is made in the image of God. Um, when we see someone who is transgender, um, that person, too, is made in the image of God. Um, now, the flip side that we have also seen in this uh, course is the fall. Um, that by virtue of the fall, our own, our, our, our inherent sinfulness at this point, um, the chaos that creation has been thrown into, uh, we cannot assume that what we are by nature, uh, even, is what we were intended to be. Um, there is much in me um, and in all people uh, that is not as God intended to be, and none of us perfectly reflect God's image. And I would say, um, and, and so I would say that, you know, it's an interesting question, um, and I'm not going to get into the science a whole lot because I'm not a scientist, and, uh, you know, this was talked about more in the kingdom sexuality class. I don't need to rehash all that, but, um, but you know, we, we've probably all heard at this point that there um, are a lot of scientists who um, believe that there are at least genetic factors that contribute to someone's uh, sexuality, um, and... Maybe it's not hard to believe. Now, um, I don't know where the latest science stands on that. There's a spectrum of opinions on that. Is it developmental? Is it, uh, uh, is it, um, you know, is it nature or is it nurture or is it some combination of the two? And I think that probably most scientists today are leading towards that third option. Uh, although, as I said, I'm not a scientist and I only follow this stuff a little bit. Um, 
but 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 then but again, how would you understand that if if a person um, if if it's true, what if it's true that a person has genetic factors um, that lead them? Uh, predispose them in some way to be um, homosexual um, and to to have same-sex attraction. Um, there may be, and so there's one school of thought out there that says, well, in that case, if that were true, then it can't be wrong. Um, there's another school out there that says, well, that can't be the case because God wouldn't make anyone um, with uh, you know, an inherent desire, a genetic factor that leads them to be attracted to the same sex. Um, and I would say that both of those schools of thought are wrong um, because they're not taking into account the fall and what the fall has done to deface the image of God um, uh, correctly. And uh, simply put, we just can't assume that even our genetics um, necessarily reflect God's intention at this point. Um, and but let me go back then to the issue of uh, of how we how we how we treat people. Um, all people are worthy of respect and equal dignity, um, and that includes the LGBTQ, LGBTQ community uh, 100%. Um, but there's also a difference in between standing up for what is um, what is true and what is right and abusing someone. Uh, there has to be a difference um, because, uh, well, there are all sorts of things that a person may desire in, in all sorts of arenas of life, not just sexuality, um, that are not good for them. And so what I believe scripture tells us is that, um, is that same-sex relationships um, uh, are not God's design and they will inherently um, lead, us, uh, lead us away from God, which is actually leading us toward the diminishment of his image in us. Um, and so from that perspective, if that's true, then actually... Um, loving that person and respecting their dignity um, mandates that we cannot just say um, whatever you are is fine. And not any more than I could say um, to a lot of other people with um, you know, various uh, sins in their life, um, whatever you are is fine. Or I shouldn't just say sins, but even uh, various inclinations towards sin um, because to be, uh, to be totally... Um, um, transparent. I don't see same-sex attraction as a sin. I see homosexual practice as a sin. Um, and um, uh, so, um, you know, uh, the, I think I've probably fairly answered it at, at this point, um, but I'll just be repeating myself if I go on. But all that to say that there is, there is, there is just some sort of, there is a tension there between um, respecting people who are made in the image of God and um, also standing up for the truth which is actually um, tied into their own dignity as the image of God. Um, okay, thank you for that. Uh, hopefully that was, I feel like I rambled quite a bit, but hopefully that made some sense. Um, uh, other questions or comments? Eric. 
thanks for this whole class, Chip. It's been it's been really edifying and a blessing. So just want to say first, appreciate your preparation and uh, and your willingness to teach it. Uh, not to go down a too deep a rabbit hole, but throughout you know Christian history, people have contemplated you know in our when we're redeemed and glorified, just how much like Christ are we? Do we become indistinguishable in some sense? Do we retain an individual identity separate from that? Um, so I was wondering if you could comment on just some of the ways people have thought about that um, and just present anything you might know about that. Uh, that's a great question. Um, uh, not an easy one, but a good one. Um, so the so one thing that, I mean, part of it's easy. I can at least say this. Um, I don't think that human beings in their glorified state ever become the second person of the Trinity. So, so there's always that, um, there's always going to be that line of separation. Um, one thing that's always clear in the Bible is that there is a firm separation between creator and creature that can never be crossed. Um, and so that's not going to disappear. And so in one sense, he'll always be different from us. He will always be above us and um, he will always be God and we never will be. Um, but, uh, I, I do think that scripture points in a lot of places to the fact that we are, um, you know, as, as Irenaeus famously said, I quoted him last week, um, uh, he became what we are so that we might become what he is. This was also uh, a point that Athanasius made later in, um, his famous work, uh, on the incarnation. And, um, and it does seem that early Christians generally did think that um, that the work of redemption in us, when it was complete, and when we really became, you know, perfect and complete in eternity, glorified uh, with Christ, um, that we would be uh, very close reflections of Him, and so um, maybe just different in magnitude or different in scale. Um, but in our glorified state, perhaps we really do become miniatures of him, um, uh, although, although not him. And um, I probably can't say a whole lot more than that, uh, because the rest of it, I think, is even in Scripture itself, um, shrouded in mystery. We're told in many places that we will be very glorious creatures uh, post-resurrection, uh, but the exact nature of that um, is um, hidden from us, maybe because it would be incomprehensible. Um, okay, we have time for maybe one more. Yeah. So how, how are we to understand that we're, God's never been against us um, with descriptions of being his enemies under his wrath in places in scripture? That's a great question. Um, how do we understand God never being against us uh, in light of being um, under his wrath? And so I would say that when I say God is for us and not against us, um, I am speaking in a very sort of broad, holistic sense. Um, if we looked at uh, God's purposes for us um, broadly, uh, his, you know, his, um, we could say eternal purposes for us, or, you know, if we could see, perhaps if we could glimpse our entire life as a whole in a moment, like he can, um, then from that angle, it would appear that he has never been against us. He's always been for us. Uh, having said that, 
um, there are certainly times um, along the way when um, people experience God's wrath. Um, um, we may be under God's wrath. We may um, experience God's discipline. Um, but I think there are also a lot of places in Scripture that point to the fact that God's wrath, even, is, um, is purposed toward uh, repentance and redemption um, up until the point where that's no longer possible. And so, um, so I would say, and maybe I do need to qualify this in one, um, well, um, it's, it, let, let me just say this. In, in our life here, I think that you can say uh, in, you know, in the totality of his actions toward us, God is for us and not against us. Um, that doesn't preclude things like discipline along the way. Um, in which he's still actually for us, even if it feels like he's against us. Um, the, the question, the real question would be, can it still be said that he's for us and not against us um, for those who have died without Christ, those who are eternally under God's wrath? Um, and there I will just say that theologians actually have a couple different ways of addressing that question. Some would say yes, and so in that sense, I would need to qualify this then and say he's for us and not against us up until that point. Um, uh, other theologians would actually say no, even then he's actually uh, still a God of love, but that wrath is what wrath actually is, is the experience of love rejected. Um, and so, um, and so it, the eternal experience of God's wrath is actually the um, eternal experience of love being rejected um, eternally. Um, and uh, that may be confusing. Unfortunately, uh, that's where I have to leave us. Um, so, um, so just to say, there are a couple different answers that theologians have come up with there. Um, and that's probably the best I can do right now. All right. Thank you all. I hope this has been a helpful class. Thank you all.